Law Focus Podcast, bringing you the facts, handing you your rights. This is Law Focus. Good evening to you, our listener, and welcome to Law Focus on Vow FM 88.1. Thank you for tuning in again. My name is Tab Mahapi, and I'm your host for the show that aims to deal with legal issues and things relating to the law. We're here to inform you about your legal rights, as well as have conversations about the current issues within the law fraternity. Now, this is the last Tuesday of the month of September, and South Africa is also wrapping up its Heritage Month. So what better way to end the month than to discuss the various traditional practices and how they interact with the law, human rights, our perceptions, etc. It's a very important conversation, and it's one that I don't think we have often enough. Now, of course, it's important that we as a country preserve our heritage. Every country, every culture has that duty. And it's for future generations, we will be able to pass it on to them. Now, as the world globalizes and cultures tend to merge, perhaps we're letting go of some of our customs for various reasons, including the ones I've already mentioned. The fact that we're also living in the 21st century, where the country, as well as its systems, are perhaps more homogenized and westernized as well, could be the reason that sometimes there's a perceived clash between the legal systems and cultures that have been practiced over the years. But before we tackle this complex yet very interesting topic, let's first have a look at our top legal stories of the week. Here are legal hotspots. Rounding up all, all the top all stories, the of, the stories of the week is legal hotspots. The Sunday Times has reported that the chair of the information regulator, that's advocate Pansy Kalkula, was asked how they'll be able to regulate the sale of private data by credit bureaus. In the newspaper's Q&A, Takula said the Protection of Personal Information Act gives them quite effective enforcement powers, and as a result, they aren't completely toothless. But when advocate Takula was asked whether they can act against those who don't comply with the act, she conceded that they can't force, nor fine, nor even prosecute anybody. Now, in the Experian case, she said they have appointed forensic analysts to review Experian's investigation and to make sure that the information that Experian gives them is accurate. The EFF is in trouble over its social media comments. Now, the Human Rights Commission is taking the EFF and its leader, Julius Malema, to the Equality Court over a social media post shared on the party's platform last year. This is reported by News24. The party shared a video on its Twitter and Facebook pages paying tribute to the late former Zimbabwean president, Robert Mugabe, on the 14th of September. It contains statements which the commission believes constitute violations of the Promotion of Equality and Prevention of Unfair Discrimination Act. So that one is interesting to see how it's going to go. I suspect the EFF will fight it quite vigorously. And the courts move to restrict borderless cyberspace. Now, this is becoming quite a thing across the world, and I suppose Africa is no different. Legal Brief has reported that a borderless cyberspace and the ability to send instant communication without checks and balances is seeing a growing number of companies, individuals, and other organizations being hauled before the courts for the email and social media missives. The online publication says that a case in which the acting justice Anthony Miller decided the confirmation of an interdict was more appropriate than an award for damages, which was the latter course had been uh, argued by the respondent. The applicant's ex-husband has been interdicted and restrained from copying, using, sharing, disseminating, distributing, and or publishing the applicant's private and personal confirmation. Now, the couple, after a divorce, they had a payment dispute in the maintenance court. And in the case before the Gauteng High Court in Johannesburg, the ex-husband accessed his former wife's information and their minor child, that being emails and WhatsApp messages. He then took these emails and WhatsApp messages and distributed them in bulk to other people. And uh, the people who received it included the headmaster of the school, a doctor, as well as the ex-wife of a man with whom the ex-wife was allegedly having an affair. The pettiness never goes away. It's not a high school thing. And that now has led to some real question marks around cyberspace and the dissemination and sharing of information. Rounding up all, all the top all stories, the of, the stories of the week is Legal Hotspots. Law Focus, handing you your rights. Welcome back to Law Focus. We're glad you could join us tonight on VAL 88.1. 
as we come to the end of this month of September in South Africa, we celebrate Heritage Month by embracing the unique and multiple cultures that we have in this country. We also take the opportunity to reflect on what cultural practices may clash with human rights. And when we look at the law and how it interacts with tradition, sometimes they can complement each other, but sometimes they collide, especially with the constitutional principles and sometimes with the law itself. To mention just a few of perhaps the more famous customs, are initiation, virginity testing, polygamy, which are still practiced quite widely across the country. Now, some will argue that there's a lack of knowledge about the constitution and different understanding of rights within our country, while others might say that people have already been bombarded with their rights, but perhaps they don't know how to exercise them. Looking at this, going back some years now, in about August of 2011, advocate Joyce Maduleko, who was the then director of the Gender Director of the South African Department of Justice Inclusion and Constitutional Development, she addressed the annual general conference in South Africa. This was the South African chapter of the International Association of Women Judges, and it was held in Potchefstroom. And she highlighted how some cultural practice may be harmful, such as early or forced marriages, virginity testing, widows' rituals, female genitation, mutilation, etc. And that's just to name one or two of them. Now, she does consider respect for tradition, culture, and customs to be a very important part of the South African identity. What are we without our history? But she argued that not all of these cultural practices are rooted in human rights, democracy, and equality. Now, tonight we are joined by the chairperson of the National House of Traditional Leaders, Inkosi Sipo Masangu, who will talk to us about some of the cultural aspects that perhaps can come into a clash or perhaps not always in line with constitutional rights. Inkosi Masangu, hello and welcome to the show. Thank you. Good evening and good evening to your listeners as well. If you could just tell us and our listeners who don't know what the role of the traditional leaders are and what the House of Traditional Leaders actually does. Firstly, a traditional leader is firstly a custodian of culture. A traditional leader would be a leader of a certain tribe. That tribe or a community would have different villages within that community and there would be a headman that reports to the traditional leader that is responsible for that community, looking at issues of culture and customs, looking at uh, socio-economic issues around the area, looking at issues around justice, safety and security of the community that lives there, and also being the interface between government and the community and would be the one that uh, normally would take uh, issues that are raised by the community to the authorities. So he becomes more like a voice for those communities in rural areas. And I think uh, when you are talking about the House of Traditional Leaders, firstly, a House of Traditional Leaders is set up according to legislation. You have a House of Traditional Leaders Act that has just been amended now in 2009 that sets up traditional leaders and yeah, it comes from a your traditional and leadership governance framework act of 2003 act number 41 that is set up or that gave you know permission towards uh, setting up of houses but we also draw from the constitution chapter 12 of the constitution that is your yeah, section 211 of the constitution firstly how houses are made up we have about 882 traditional councils in the country that is traditional leaders and about um, 13 kingships including principal traditional leadership councils those 882 senior traditional leaders are responsible for about approximately 8,000 headmen who are responsible for villages so there's approximately 10,000 villages that are under administration of traditional leaders, covering approximately 25 million people in the country uh, that are in uh, rural areas and responsible for about 17.5 million hectares of land in, in, in the country. So what happens is the 882 traditional councils will then form what you call local houses. Those are houses that are at municipal level. Then local houses will then send members to provinces that are going to form a provincial house. So they would elect members to the province. So once members are elected to the province, there would be a certain number, I think about three per province, that are elected from the province to the national house. So that's where I am. That's the institution that I'm chairing. But it's an institution that starts from the 882 members right up to 
where we finally have the National House. So part of the responsibilities of the National House, firstly, it's to take care of the institution of traditional leadership as a whole, being the advisor to government when it comes to issues of culture and customs. Also being an advisor to government when it comes to issues of service delivery, socioeconomic development in rural communities. We also are playing an oversight of uh, what government does. So we're more like parliament of traditional leaders because we operate both in Pretoria and Cape Town at, in parliament. So as soon as the president opens or gives the state of the nation address, two weeks after, by law, he must come and open the National House of Traditional Leaders in parliament. So we make comments and inputs to legislation. You know, legislation are normally tagged as Section 75 legislation or Section 76 legislation. So Section 76 legislation is the one that would go to a National Council of Provinces so that provinces can be consulted. Uh, there could be consultation with communities and provinces. So that legislation, it also requires the National House to make inputs on such legislation, especially legislation that has an impact on culture, legislation that has an impact on people in rural areas. So, so the role of the traditional leaders is very extensive. Uh, it's, it's not just sitting at the local sort of area and uh, dealing with that, it actually goes quite far in terms of the contribution that's made in legislation, etc. Yes, it goes far. I mean, even even now, uh, we also sit in what you call uh, intergovernmental relations where we participate in the presidential coordinating committee as the House, where the president and premiers and all ministers sit. The House sits in that committee that decides on issues that affect us on a daily basis, including COVID-19 currently. We also participate on your, on your MinMax, where we would try to push for government to give more priority to rural communities. So we are there to raise a voice when it comes to issues that are affecting uh, rural communities. So we play a very critical role within your Department of Arts and Culture. I think if you look at Section 20 of Traditional Leadership and Governance Framework Act of 2003 or the amended version 2009, we have Section 20 there that compels government to give or allocate functions to traditional councils. So as the House would then be playing a role of holding government accountable. Before we go, perhaps too far into all of those functions, what I, you know, what I would perhaps want to ask you now is... In terms of practical day-to-day, you know, there's 25 million citizens, perhaps, who rely on traditional leaders for some sort of local government or local administration. How important has the role of taking the place, for example, of a magistrate been in the uh, day-to-day lives of the people that live under traditional structures? I ask you this because we're going to get into how the law and traditional leaders interact. So how important has, has, you know, the administration of law settling disputes, all that been so far? Look, I think um, as the sector, we, you know, we are just about the only sector that still performs these functions according to apartheid legislation being the Black Administration Act. You know, there's a few sections that have not been repealed uh, where we are still operating under those uh, pieces of legislation because you have what you call a traditional courts bill that has been before parliament for the past uh, 12 to 14 years where you have what we call neoliberal structures that are always up in arms and against that piece of legislation and i believe that it is mainly organizations that have found weaknesses of parliament in terms of its role consultation role because each and every time you go to parliament you find the same structures that would oppose that bill for it not to go ahead. So now you, as the traditional leader, you know, the Black Administration Act normally gave magistrates uh, superior powers over you as a traditional leader. But I think we are still working now on that uh, legislation and we think that uh, it will finally be passed where traditional leaders will be able to work in the confines of the constitution. They would be able to work according to the prescripts of our constitution and other pieces of legislation. Yeah, yeah. I imagine that that's got to be quite a difficult thing to deal with where you have legislation which has got to be decades old and not in line with today. So in your experience and that of the members of the House, 
is the law now more lenient, more accepting of culture and cultural norms? Is it willing to adapt? Or do we still find these big hurdles that come from, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, which kind of put traditional leaders in a bad light? Or has it now changed the way in which legislation is actually played out in practice? Look, I think uh, in practice, uh, there's quite a number of things that we failed at as a country. One, if you look at Roman Dutch law, even those that wrote a Roman Dutch law are not practicing it anymore. You know, so our common law is based on Roman Dutch law and of which does not favor us as black uh, South Africans or black Africans. It was laws that were made for a different race, not necessarily for us. So a person would be subjected to things that are against their culture. We have not seen customary law, even though customary law is an important part of our constitution and our living being as a country, but you know, it is not evolving. Yes, even the legal scholars, no one is putting effort to research these customs and cultures. Mm-hmm. So you find that the culture and custom that is written in some of the books has become obsolete because customary law is a living law, it's dynamic, it, it changes as communities grow. So we haven't seen much in terms okay. of development of customary law. Of course, yeah. even when you look at the scholars, you don't have too many scholars that are good at customary law. So we are focusing more on common law, being your Roman Dutch law, of which in most cases works against us as Africans. That's why you'd find more Africans in jail than any other race. You know, even though we are the majority part. I suppose one could ask the question, what does Akio Paulini and what what mean when you're sitting in Mthanga or wherever it is, you know, because it's not going to make sense to any of the people sitting there to use those terms and to use those legal concepts in a situation like that. But I mean, that's what we're living with at the moment. Now, um, moving on perhaps to the cultural practices themselves. As you say, you know, our cultural laws and our customs and our practices, of course, they evolve because they can't stand still. Life you know, happens and people move from the rural areas to the cities and back, etc. And some of these cultural practices have been stopped. The argument sometimes has been that, but they are against certain human rights. What do you think about situations such as that? Because there can be a clash between the law, perhaps the constitution, not even the common law, but the constitution and a cultural practice. And then something's got to give. I'd like your thoughts on that and how you process as a house that kind of conflict that does exist at times. Firstly, we need to admit as a country that the constitution that we have is the best constitution for everybody in the world, but it might not be the best for us as Africans because there's quite a number of areas in the constitution that are currently holding this very government at ransom. So where government cannot move on quite a number of things that are supposed to be advancing your indigenous people of this country. So it would then mainly benefit those that knew exactly what they were doing, that were influencing the direction of the constitution. But I think when it comes to cultural practices, yes, uh, there are cultural practices that uh, may seem to be against the constitution. They would seem to be against the constitution because they are being abused now because of lack of understanding of those cultural practices where we've been in court, where we were friends of the court against uh, people that were using the culture of Ugutuala incorrectly as the institution of traditional leadership. So there's quite a number of cultural practices that are currently being abused by different communities, even people that are not practicing those cultures. You know, they want to use them for their own selfish reasons. Those cultures were not meant to do that. Because if you look at culture, cultures seek to build a community, to create social cohesion amongst the community. It seeks to protect its community and also to bring respect amongst the community and also to create a sense of belonging for community members. Then I think like any other law that we have in the country, we always find people that are going to abuse that law or abuse that culture for their own selfish uh, reasons. And in most cases, it would not be people practicing the culture, but it would be people that are doing thuggery and trying to hide behind culture. So we exposed some of those people. 
where we've been friends of the court on those issues to put now, the culture into perspective. Welcome back to Law Focus. And if you've just joined us, we are in conversation with Inko Sisipo Masangu, who is the chairperson of the National House of Traditional Leaders. And we're discussing various traditional practices in the law, how they interact, how they clash, where there are gaps within our law, and um, what the way forward might be. Now, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned perhaps what has got to be, I think Uktuala has got to be one of the most famous examples that are used, as well as, let's say, virginity testing, and sometimes the circumcision and the initiation schools are sometimes used as uh, examples of, uh, of cultural practices that are quote-unquote outdated, are not in line with our constitution, are not in line with our laws, and violate people's rights. Now, I want to ask you perhaps a two-part question. The first one will be, are these are these cultural practices, some of them, let's say, Uktuala, virginity testing, and um, the initiation schools, are they truly part of our culture? And then next, are they being done in accordance with that culture? And thirdly, I would say, is there an unnecessary or is the negative light unwarranted or can are people should people be genuinely concerned about these quote-unquote cultural practices if they indeed are cultural practices look i think firstly yes they are cultural practices that's one two yes people should be concerned you know with the way they are being used look at uh, the area of Ubutuala. Ubutuala, it was a symbolic activity that would be amongst two people that are in love. You would not go and toala, according to our culture, a girl goes through certain processes that describes your growth. So you need to have gone through what you call intonjane or tomba, and normally you must be over 16 for you to have gone through intonjane or tomba. That is in the first place. And two, Ugutuala was done uh, where you find that, say, uh, you have a daughter, I have a son. Mina, now we cannot agree on Ilobol. So now these two kids will then agree and it would be a symbolic thing. So the person that is being twilight knows that she is going to be twilight so that they circumvent the Lobola negotiations because now that she is at the in-laws, you are now compelled as the father to the girl to be in line with what the boys' family is putting on the table because already they've gone through a certain period. I mean, even Naji when I married my wife, there was a symbolic Uutuala process that happened, you know, there. But it's something that happens between two lovers. So you don't just go and grab a person that does not know you or a young woman that is below the age of consent. And normally, once that has happened, there would be negotiations between parents, but you just don't twala anyone willy-nilly. It is a negotiated process amongst two people that are in love. That's one. Two, the issue of initiation. Initiation, because of, like you are saying, you know, people are being urbanized and all sorts of things. So you find that it, it has slipped the institution of traditional leadership. One, because the traditional court bill where we are supposed to be dealing with those that are transgressing, you don't have those powers to be able to deal with those. So it is now left to the police and people find a gap because the police will not arrest the people that they are supposed to be arresting and say, well, this is a cultural issue. And now as a cultural practitioner as a traditional leader you can't deal with those that are perpetrating because the law does not allow you to you know because you are working under certain legislation that has limitations in terms of a role that you can play in making sure that this culture works so now you find the law bumps each other this piece of legislation uh, the police will say no 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 our legislation does not allow us to do that and then Naji is supposed to act and say, hey, Naji, our legislation. So there's a lot of gray areas that are being created. And then you also find virginity testing. I mean, a lot of gender activists and organizations have taken a decision that virginity testing is wrong. But people that are practicing that culture are saying, but who told you that we have a problem with this culture? So, and the culture keeps on growing year in, year out. You know, where people are doing it and you'd even find the head of state attending the very same function, speaking at the very same function, and yet you also have the law that says, no, 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 this is illegal, and this is not so. We sometimes feel that when we, we sometimes pass laws that are not applicable, because those laws, uh, we cannot police them, we cannot even implement them, uh, because there was no proper consultation uh, when they were passed, you know, because 
If you look at initiation, per year you have over 200,000 boys that you go to initiation. And people are not forced to go there. They go voluntarily. So if you come up with a law that stops it, people are then going to start doing it illegally, you know, and will not be able to control it. So it's better that uh, we confine our legislation to give us proper authorities to be able to deal with uh, problems where people are doing illegal things, they must be arrested. You know, but you, you cannot throw away a baby, you know, so no. you need to find a way on how to protect this baby that we believe in as Africans. It's something that defines who we are. We've come up with quite a number no. of inter- interventions and they are unable to work because communities are not accepting them. Right. Now, I'd like to sort of move to that now, where we have cultural practices within the community. So I'll give you a little bit of background about myself so that you can answer the question perhaps a bit better. So my mother's Zulu, my father's Soto. I'm perhaps a little bit more Zulu than I am Soto for whatever reasons, just a, perhaps a preference. And both of my families are quite cultural. But I grew up very much in a Western lifestyle. And I've lived in sort of the suburbs most of my life, but practically all of my life. And then I find that even though I'm in Africa and I have these cultural practices from both sides of my families, which I, I respect both very much and like to be part of, I need to leave my home in Johannesburg or wherever and go down to the Free State, leave my home in Johannesburg, go down to Ladysmith or wherever it is that my family is, in order for me to fulfill the cultural practices that are important to me. Does the law in reality allow for us to really practice our cultural practices freely? Because it's not that different from the situation that existed 50 years ago, where as a black person, you must leave your area in order to go and practice your custom in the quote-unquote homelands. Now, is our law really, really in tune with us? And are we making progress? Look, it goes back to what I said earlier. Firstly, the Constitution, our Constitution is the best and also is the best for everybody, but not necessarily the best for us because it does not address our issues as Africans. And some of the legislations that we have passed as a country, they have not taken care of the fact that we are black South Africans and uh, we live in South Africa, we have our own way. So if you are integrating us into the whole society, so then our legislation must be able to allow you as an African to be an African wherever you are. You know, so you can't be an African because now all of a sudden you must go back to the homeland to be able to go and be an African because you have a different race that is a minority that does not believe in what uh, you are doing. So we need to find a way of saying uh, diversity in our cultures is important and people should be able to appreciate that we are different and diverse uh, people. There are things that we would want to practice and I should be allowed to practice that at home. But our law, unfortunately, has not done that. So that's why currently we are busy fighting uh, with a parliament and trying to push that, you know, when we make uh, comments as an institution, I do not speak for myself, but I speak for a community that is behind me. So when you go to parliament and go and present on behalf of communities, they look at you as, in Kosmatang, as an individual and there will be an organization that represents five people there that will also be opposing you and you'll be looked at with the same eye. And yet I am responsible for 300,000 people. And you have this organization that says, no, 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 I'm an NGO. They don't even state how many people they represent. But if you check, they will not even have more than five people behind them, you know, that they represent. But your law would look at you the same way. So we're saying, no, 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 let's find a way of legislators going down to communities and talking to people that are practicing those cultures and making sure that they now slowly integrate these communities to other communities that are living in urban areas. Because if I'm Debele, even when I'm in Sentin, you know, so I should be able to practice my culture in Sentin. So the law must be able to protect me, but our legislation is not doing that. So hence, even now during COVID, we found ourselves exposed as a country. You know, the, our inequalities were laid bare. So we are only now seeing that there's a lot that we have not done as a country, even as government, and us as traditional leaders to be able to take our people on board in all these things that uh, we are doing. So there's so many legislations that have been passed that are not talking to us as Africans. And I think we are trying to push that we go back to the drawing board and see what is it that we can change. Listening to Law Focus? Connect with VowFam88.1 on Twitter and Facebook. Be your own lawyer. Welcome back. 
to Law Focus. And if you've just joined us, we're in conversation with Inkwazisipo Mathango. He's the chairperson of the National House of Traditional Leaders. And we're discussing various cultural practices in law. And it seems as though there are some serious challenges that we still have. Perhaps we think that we are more homogenous and more in tune with our culture than we actually believe we are. Chieftains perhaps don't have quite as much authority as what we at one stage believed. Our conversation is fascinating. Let's continue. You know, um, what you're raising is really important, but time is, I suppose, not on us. I could talk about this forever because I feel trapped. Uh, honestly, as a younger South African, I feel very trapped sometimes in this um, you know, struggle between being westernized and still having very strong roots in uh, the rural areas and culturally. But like I say, time is not really on our hands. So what I will perhaps finish off by asking you is there are certain things which are crucial to us as particularly as black people. Let's, for instance, take the example of a traditional healer who needs to use certain medication in order to administer to his patients. And then you have legislation that says, but you can't do that. It's things like that where we are, again, you know, having a real problem. What is the National House of Traditional Leaders looking to do to elevate the position of Africans and our cultures within this ever-changing and modern society? As I said earlier, COVID-19 has really, you know, exposed all of us. And I think it is only now that government is starting to see the importance of the institution of traditional leadership. And I think uh, the forums to engage are being more open for us as a sector to be able to advance issues that are affecting our community. So as the National House, I mean, like when we're using the traditional healer example, most of the medicine that the traditional healers are using have now been taken by those that are coming from the Western countries. You know, COVID-19 showed us that is very important, you know, and now you find a lot of pharmaceutical companies that are packaging and selling it now as a Western medicine to us. You know, Ufuta, we had our own way of Ufuta, now all those things are being bottled and packaged and all those. So now we need to assist our people to also move towards that direction. You know, where if I'm a traditional healer, I should be able to package my products in a way that people that are westernized, uh, because a lot of Africans, yes, are also becoming westernized, could be able to use them. You know, and not be ashamed to party Saganyana, or whatever. You feel good, people will think that you are backwards. You know, you'd prefer it to be in a pill or it's in some bottle. So we need to assist our traditional healers to also tap into those people because they are part of us. You know, so as a sector, we are trying. Our level best is difficult because you are competing with a political system, and a political system does not want two centers of power because it is based on patronage. So it must be able to survive. So you'd forever be suppressed as a second. But I'm happy that uh, COVID-19 has exposed us and has made us more relevant now, you know, during uh, this period. So we are now taking advantage of that uh, mm-hmm. and making our voice in the presidential coordinating committee, be it in, you know, platforms that are being created. I mean, we are being invited all over by different departments and private sector to be able to come and speak as a sector you know, on behalf of our communities. Obviously, those were the communities that uh, were very vulnerable during this pandemic. Well, we, we hope that you keep up the good work. Unfortunately, our time has come to an end. And uh, we thank you very much for joining us tonight. I wish we could talk more about this because we could talk about this for hours. It fascinates me. And to our listeners, that was Nkosi Sipo Masangu, the chairperson of the National House of Traditional Leaders. And thank you so much for joining us tonight and informing us about the work that your institution does and uh, for the importance of, you know, highlighting the importance of culture to us so we don't really lose our identity. It sounds as though the old saying, not yet Uhuru, is still very much it is uh, not part of our lives today as it was in the past. But thank you very much for joining us tonight. We appreciate it. No, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity. And uh, thank you. Uh, we wish that uh, you'd also yeah, talk to us next time on any other issue. We are open as the house would want to engage, want to get uh, the voice out there that it is about time that an African child rises. It's about time that we build patriotism amongst our own people, that we take the economy back. We use customary law as the common law of the country, not as a second-class law of the country. I think it's something that we need to partner your uh, caliber of people and making sure that we start pushing that message to our communities that our cultures are important to us. Thank you so much. 
Our social media is up and running, and we always appreciate you engaging with us. The platforms where we are available are Twitter, the handle is at ValFM, using the hashtag LawFocus. Uh, on Facebook, we are ValFM. Now, for podcasts, you can visit vitstarjournalism.co.za forward slash law or the Vits Radio Academy on Iona. We ask some of you to share your views on whether you think the legal system embraces cultural practices and whether there are some customs that infringe on people's rights. Or is the narrative based on a colonized legal system? These are the interesting messages that you gave us. Hi, Tipo. My name is Iris Oda. I've attended a, a lecture by, I can't find the name of the people. It's a couple of uh, American people who were talking about the um, traditional system in Africa in general and saying that it's a parallel system to Western laws that indeed they are conflicting because of the interference of the Western world and Western laws, the traditional systems can't really be efficient. Hi, my name is Kenzie. I think that there will always be an uncomfortable relationship between law and African practices and customs and traditions. And there'll always be at some point a way of trying to meet common ground or amending laws or striking down of certain customs or resistance towards certain customs, it'll always be a battle of some kind. Mainly because the law that is currently in place in South Africa is based on Roman Dutch law. It wasn't designed for Africans. It's never been designed for Africans. Even when laws were designed for Africans in South Africa, it was in the form of an oppressive system, being apartheid, to confine us to certain spaces and to confine our, our laws and our rights to certain limitations. There are many practices, and I think that we as Africans need to relook at not just the current laws, the administrative laws that the country has, judicial laws and systems that we inherited from previous regimes. Even though we've dismantled a lot of the things, a lot of the structures are still in place. But I think we also need to look at traditional African laws as well that infringe on on human rights, on women's rights, on inheritance rights. On There's a number of things that need to be looked at across the board. I think we need to reimagine, recreate and refocus so that laws across the board speak to a harmonious, growing society and not trying to confine people to the past. Well, the legal system can embrace people's practices and cultures when it comes to issues of divorce. I mean, like sometimes you go into court and you have a situation where in culture, for example, if a man passes and has two wives, he's in a polygamous uh, marriage, you find that the first wife is being overlooked because maybe she doesn't have children. And that's where the legal system can help in that aspect. Well, it can also infringe other people's rights, as we can see at COVID. The state of an emergency, which is basically the legal system, the constitution in itself, can stop practices. And you have people that can tell you that they are sangomas, they are prophets, they need to do religious things. And they can't do it because they are under a constitution or that does not allow them to do them at that time. Law Focus on Volvo 88.1 Point of Information. Welcome back to Law Focus. And if you've just joined us, we're talking about traditional practices in the law. Now, earlier on, we spoke to the chairperson of the National House of Traditional Leaders, Inkos Masango, and we tackled various aspects of traditional practices, from virginity testing to initiation, just to name a few, and how some of these can infringe on the human rights of others. Now, from this conversation, it's clear that as a country, we still have a long way to go in terms of acknowledging customary laws and indigenous values are still upholding people's uh, human rights. Now, looking at the various cultural practices that we've touched upon during the show, one can see that there's a real alignment between cultural practices and the obligations placed by the Constitution, especially for those engaged in the practices themselves. We're now in discussion with Andrew Apane from Legal Aid, and he's going to give us some insight on the topic. Welcome to Law Focus, Andrew, and thank you for joining us on the show tonight. Thank you. The pleasure is mine. Uh, tell us, do you think, as a country, we actually, I know on paper we have it, but in, in reality, do we have the right to practice our different cultures, irrespective of where we live? 
I'm asking this because in some areas there are bylaws, particularly in highly urbanized areas, there are bylaws that don't allow practices like slaughtering of animals. Do you think we are able throughout the country to actually practice our traditional customs? My view on that question is that I don't think we are quite ready at the moment. I don't think we are where we are supposed to be in terms of tolerance against on other people's beliefs. We seem to be going to the direction of other cultures, especially the black people. Mm. We don't respect and take care of our own cultures, and we are afraid to exercise them. Like, for instance, those bylaws, I mean, to me, they can be challenged. Why are you not allowed to slaughter a cow in your own house following your own culture? Because Mm. every animal that we eat has been slaughtered anyway. In some way, yes, it doesn't come from heaven. In a in a plastic bag, <laughs> it was living and breathing at one stage. Yeah, so we tend to follow the cultures of the brighter color mm. than ours. So mm. if we could change, everything is not black and white as we see it. Mm. But I think if you approach a court of law anytime, any day, with a good application, they'll grant you that application. Remember mm. customary law or customary rights or cultures of other people, they are respected for as long as they are inconsistent with the constitution. Mm. If they are Mm. consistent, it agrees with the constitution, they can win those cases, like the one Mm. of of slaughtering something in a suburban area. So what do you think about sometimes we find that some of our customs perhaps can clash with some human rights? You know, I know there's a lot of controversy around initiation and virginity testing because some people say it's not voluntary, et cetera, et cetera. But what do you think we can do to try and align these things sometimes where they don't always naturally sort of come together smoothly? I think in terms of African culture, initiation and virginity testing has always been there. But then when the constitution comes, now you have to look at the rights as in the constitution, like the right to dignity, uh, which is very important, right? Everyone can waive that right. If it's me, an old man as I am, waiving that right to mm-hmm. dignity, maybe I'm, I'm saying I want to go to in, initiation school. It's fine. The problem is that we tend to take the little ones to initiation schools. So it becomes a problem because they don't have legal capacity or any capacity at that young age. So Mm. if it was possible to take those who are measures, remember in South Africa, you can be a measure by the age of 18 now. Yes. So if we could wait until that 18 years and a person goes to virginity testing or initiation, I don't think there's something wrong there because it's voluntary and it's done by a person with full legal capacity. So changing it a little bit so that they go when they're a little bit older and they can give their own consent if they want to go. Exactly. It's all about consent. And when you are still a minor, you cannot give consent. You can't do it properly. Yeah, that's true. Now, welcome yeah. back to, to Law Focus, our listeners. And if you've just joined us, we're in conversation with Mr. Apane from the Legal Aid. And we're discussing various traditional practices and how they interact with the law. Do you think that we will be able to get our cultural practices in sync with our constitution over time? Do you think that's coming, that more and more our cultural practices are going to be in line with the constitution? Or are they already in line with um, constitutional values? I don't think uh, at the moment they are in line with the constitutional values, just like the question you asked earlier. Mm. If you can remember the way I responded, that uh, at least when the person is 18 years. So we, according to our culture, we can take even someone of seven years to initiation, which is a problem. So we are not, not yet aligned. And to my thinking, I think as time goes by, culture must change. But if a black culture must change, it also means that there must be a shift on the other side. Mm. Because blacks cannot always give away their culture, whereas the other side is not doing anything. Mm. I think that's a bit political, not that legal. But you're saying there must be give and take here. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Not the one side must abolish their ways of life and the other one is uh, perfectly aligned for others Mm. to follow their cultures. I think we are not there yet. Mm. It's a long way to go. But now the concept of human rights 
as we understand them today. Are they something that does exist within our cultures, even if maybe we don't call it human rights, but does that idea exist in our cultures? And is it something that when we're practicing our cultures that we are aware of? You know, I think to a little degree, there were human rights, but remember our culture always sided with a man or a male. Mm. So that's where the problem comes. If everyone was equal, because equality is the most important right. If all of us were equal, females and male, at least we could be talking something. But the way females were treated like kids, children, in some cultures they could not inherit. Uh, only last born male could inherit, you see. Mm. So they were not entirely aligned with human rights on that basis because yeah. of no equality. No, that's true. They are, there was a lot of, well, what is it called, um, patriarchy and primogeniture as well yeah, in, that's in those days. Uh, yeah, that is, yeah, that's a very important point there. I mean, yeah. um, it's something that perhaps we need to examine. And I think our cultures are able to adapt to stay what they are, uh, you know, but also to kind of adapt to the new way of doing things. You don't have to do it the way people did it exactly 100 years ago. You know, it can be a little yeah, bit you, different. You you know, every situation or every person is afraid of change. Mm. There are times when you have to adapt, as you are saying. So, But change is very difficult to do because people who are used to certain ways of life, they think is the best way. Mm. For instance, uh, in a customary way of living, there is this concept of ugutual. Mm. where you just meet a girl on the street and you you twirler the girl to forcefully ask for a hand in marriage. That girl lives in your home until they come to seek her and you ask for a hand in marriage. You Mm. see, that cannot be in line with the modern society, the way human rights are based. That we will say is kidnapping in our society now. Mm. 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 A lot of people make the argument that Ugutwala has got a different origin and that, uh, you know, it has been abused. You know, one of the chieftains that we spoke to made that analogy as well. But I mean, I suppose that's a story for a different day. But if we say, you know, my previous question was around whether human rights are part of our culture and et cetera, et cetera. But do you think then that the constitution is something that we as a country as part of our laws and our customs, that the constitution itself is something that was just created and put on our shoulders, or is it actually something that we already have some kind of, this is what we believe and we put that into writing, if you follow what I'm saying. Is it something that came from outside and was given to us, or is it something that we created from our own beliefs and said, but this is what we want to record and make this part of our way of doing things? I think it's twofold. Uh, the other parts might be uh, in alignment with the ways we used to be. Like in the Constitution, you know, the most important chapter is Chapter 2 on the Constitution. Mm. I think there you have a right to life. We as Africans always valued life. We valued privacy also. And equality, there's a bit of a problem there because of we used to live there. But most of the rights, I mean, freedom of movement, they are in alignment with the way we used to live. I think the most important right which we did not follow is only according to me the right to equality mm. where all of us have to be equal before the law or equal in all instances but the right to life has always been there environment education mm. human dignity and on the constitution if you read the constitution they say your human dignity is inherent right mm. you don't build that right you don't inherit it's upon you from the birth sorry. So I think most of the right there in chapter two, Africans have always adhered to. Yeah, no, it's an interesting conversation. Listen, if you've just joined us, we're in conversation with Mr. Apane from Legal Aid, and we're talking about cultural practices and the law. We live in a country which has a huge number of cultural practices between the various racial groups, but even within the various language groups that exist in this country. And even in the same language group, whether you're in the north or the south, it can change. 
you know, what, how you do things, whether you do things in the morning, in the afternoon, with a sheep, with a goat, whatever. So we have a rich, rich culture of history. And we're talking of cultural history. And we're talking about how that interacts with the law. Now, some of the criticisms that we have, and I can understand this criticism of our law, is that it takes customary law, customary practices, and puts them to an extent, on the back burner. It puts them behind other laws. It puts them behind Roman Dutch law. It's a consideration later, if it suits us. And that can create a real frustration with somebody, for example, who is living, let's say, in rural Natal, rural Eastern Cape, or rural Limpopo, where Roman Dutch means nothing to them. Actio Paulini, Actio Atwa, you know, Reivindicatio, all of that is nonsense to them and the law then becomes inaccessible to them, it's not part of their day-to-day life, it's not part of their culture, it's not part of the way they resolve problems. What do you think about that as a legal practitioner? Yeah, I think there's a problem and there's a gap which we have to close there, especially our institution, Legal Aid South Africa. You know, people need to be taught these things. They need to know what is the law and what used to be the law. For instances, if I think, you know, in a marriage, when you choose to go the route of marrying many wives, mm. remember you have to marry according to the customary law. Yes. And if you marry by civil law, that one with the marriage certificate, you know that subsequent marriages are going to be void. Yes, yes. So we need to educate our people out there because remember the constitution is a cornerstone of our country. And to change it in parliament, it takes a lot of majority, which is almost impossible. Hence, it's the cornerstone of our republic. So we need to educate people about what's, what's happening in our society. I know they cannot understand those concepts of reivindication or servitude, whatever concept. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> but somehow, if you look the way they are living, they apply those concepts without knowing. Yes. If you go there, there's a, some uh, footpath passing the other one's yard from the backyard. So that that's a right of way. And they don't know that yeah, uh, we true. have that concept in law, you see. So they just need to know. And how can they regulate themselves better with the way or use that law better to suit them, their mm. situation at that moment? We are just looking as a country to go to those areas and to make them understand. But we hope that we can close those gaps in the future. Yeah, I mean, humans are humans. doesn't matter where you are. We have more or less, you know, similar values. So it's true that sometimes we don't put a fancy name on something, but we have it in our customs. And it's just a question of recognizing that we have it, even though we don't name it the way that other people may name it. Yeah, in our culture, we call it double up. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And the owner of the property will never close that double up because he knows that's true. Yeah. Now we have in our culture, like I said, we have a lot of people in South Africa from various, you know, groups, but we also have a lot of imported culture. So, you know, Christianity is an import. For example, British culture, high tea, all of those kinds of things are an import. Africana culture, you could say maybe is It comes from here, but partly important, partly from here. So we have these things, but let's move to Christianity in and of itself. Because Christianity came on a ship, okay, it's fine, it's fine, it took root. And now people will say, and I can understand why they say it, that we have Christianity which is being abused in mega churches, where you have the pastor and people are eating, uh, you know, grass and what, what, and et cetera, et cetera. And people are soft on that. They say, but we, okay, we're Christians, we don't uh, follow African cultures, we're now, we're saved or whatever, or maybe sometimes they follow them both, and if they want to slaughter at their house, oh no, it's a problem. But if they now go to church and, 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 and petrol and grass and what, what, people tend to be soft, that's the perception. And then you have to say, but is it because this is an imported European culture, even though it's being abused, yes, but people are soft on the abuse of that culture, whereas other things they're not so soft on. And is there this double standard when it comes to race? Remember, even in those churches, there are 
if you if you are going to say race is not uh, correct according to because those churches that you spoke about are being run by Africans, so mm. it becomes a problem. I think uh, the only cap that can be done on this issue of those churches is to regulate churches. You know, churches are not regulated and they make the most profit. Yeah. According to me, what I see, what I observe, I see them making a lot of profit. I see the pastors driving beautiful cars, but they are not accountable to anyone. They are not accountable to to pay even tax. You and me, mm. my friend, we are paying tax. <laughs> so I think we need regulation on a church mm. going forward. Mm. Mm. And uh, because people are being exploited. Even though those people, they do it voluntarily, but that's exploitation. Yeah. And you have to wonder whether human dignity has now fallen by the wayside as well. You know, even if the person doesn't yes. always realize that their dignity is being... Yes. You know, uh, and they are the most vulnerable people of our society because someone who is sick, they have huge belief on their prophet. So Mm -hmm. those prophets are taking advantage, and it's very scary. I think we need regulation there. Well, we're almost out of time, so I'm going to ask you just one more question and uh, how perhaps it interacts with the law as well. Traditional healers, traditional healers play a big role in South Africa, because a lot of people, if they're not feeling well, will go to a traditional healer first. You know, If they get serious, they'll go to a doctor. But don't go to a traditional healer, and the traditional healer will help them. But we often also get, for example, in our labor law, where a, the sick note of a traditional healer is no longer accepted, or, or something along those lines, you know, or the recommendation of a traditional healer isn't treated with uh, as as important, uh, whether it's by a court or by an employer or whatever the case may be. Are we not really uh, helping to disrespect real traditional healers who are doing work by not forcing the recognition of those kinds of things? What do you say about that in the law? I'm not an expert on labor law, but uh, Mm. I think those letters are acceptable, but I'm not sure 100%. Hundred mm-hmm. percent, but however, I think the role of the traditional healers must be respected. You know, something which does not bring respect to certain professions, just like that one of a church and traditionally, I think it's a matter of regulation. No, well, I think you're right on that one. You're, you're right about the um, the issue of the labour law, where a registered healer traditional can healer. Uh, they can accept it, but very often. Employers don't accept it, but strictly speaking, yeah, they but can. if they don't accept it, you know where to go. Yeah, <laughs> it's a dispute. me. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah, um, we're almost uh, out of time now. I think that perhaps we can fit in just just one more question in, in a little bit of time that we have left. What would you like to see happening in terms of as a legal professional from our you know, law point of view and looking at traditional uh, practices, uh, would you like to see them gain prominence, adjust? What would you like to see happening? I think I would like our customary way of life coming to the fore. We are very private about it. We don't talk about it. You know, the other thing that makes our ways of life or our culture to be on the back track is that when the the meetings are being called, remember for every act or most of the acts, before they introduce them, they call meetings in provinces, wherever they go. I know they go to the communities just to gauge their view on certain issues. So if we don't go to those meetings, our ways of life or culture will not be taken serious. If they call us, they want to promulgate some act, let's go and have a wait. Maybe it might be taken into account. Mm, mm, mm. Rather than complaining after the fact. (laughs) But you didn't take us into consideration. Exactly. While they came next to your street in a hall, you didn't go. You know, having spoken to you and having spoken to our other guest who is in the position of um, traditional leaders in, in the council. I think we still have a lot of work to do as a country, but it can be done. It really can be done. And it can be done in my lifetime. It can be. It but, can you be know, done. we do need to focus on it and to make sure that it's done correctly. Yeah. Uh, I think the other view uh, is the one that uh, I just spoke of. If meetings are called, let's go there. <laughs> 
uh, compared to a school meeting <laughs> yeah. where we don't go and when they come with policy, we say we are not consulted, you see. So I think let's take meetings serious, especially within the community. We need to change from the bottom and bring change to the top because yeah. you can just go to the top and change everything. Yeah, that's true. Thank you very much, Mr. Apane, uh, for talking to us taking time out from your work at Legal Aid, doing very good work there, and for sharing your knowledge with us tonight. We really appreciate it, and we hope uh, to be talking to you again soon. Thanks, Sepo. Thanks for the opportunity. Bringing you the facts, handing you your rights. This is Law Focus. That's it from all of us tonight. To our esteemed guest comprising the chairperson of the National House of Traditional Leaders in Sipo Matlangu and Andrew Apane from Legal Aid, we thank both of you for sharing your insights and your input from your experiences with the law and our cultural practices. Now, this month is a particularly special month for myself and my colleagues here at VAU FM. We're celebrating 10 years, giving you some of the best content in the Johannesburg area and we're looking forward to another 10 years of you listening to us and us contributing to the great tapestry both cultural and otherwise of Johannesburg that's all from us tonight from our producer our technical producer and myself we hope you enjoy the rest of your eating thank you for tuning in and always remember to be proud of your heritage Law Focus, Consultant, 88.1, Point of Information. Law Focus Podcast.